This is exactly right. He was already in, in daycare, so a lot of um, little things like him crawling, you know, I missed. So when you when you are not there, you have to give up your weekends to work or things like that. It just becomes all that more urgent for you to want to kind of reshape your life to fit what your parenting values and your parenting goals are. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives while striving to be the best versions of ourselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is in line with just that. Today's show is What's That? Embracing Culture, Food, and Friendship with Karen Chan. Karen, as a mother of a young child who loved children's books, realized that the characters in the books did not look like her son. And as we'll discuss, this led her to start an inclusive and mission-driven publishing company called Glue Books and write her first book, What's That? Karen is an educated person from UCLA and a former food blogger and attorney, of course, and a mother. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Dr. Dan. So from attorney to publisher, to writer, or writer to publisher. We're going to talk about how those things come together. Um, Tell us this path and tell us if, I mean, did you imagine being in this place and doing this for uh, your your mission and your career? Uh, No, I totally did not expect to, you know, be writing a children's book and starting a publishing company. Um, Even a few years ago, would not have imagined ending up here, but that's, that's parenthood for you. It kind of yeah. takes you in all different directions that you never expected. Um, so yeah, I, I was an attorney um, and worked, um, was there for at a, my law firm for about seven years at a law school and uh, practicing corporate law. I still do a little bit on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, just for fun. Yeah, just for fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think typical to a lot of people who are in corporate America had um, just, it's, it's really grueling work. You know, I was uh, doing M&A, an M&A practice and um, just high levels of burnout um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that you typically see at a big law firm that happened. That was definitely me. Um, And especially after having my first child, uh, it just felt less and less worth it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was harder and harder to kind of give up those, those hours, you know, working right. those, you know, long days, weekends, um, around the clock, you know, when it's just you and your partner, it, it doesn't feel as much of a sacrifice. No. Um, but then no. of course, once you have children, it becomes just a whole nother, 
a whole nother sacrifice on a whole nother level. So yes. I, you know, had thought about leaving for a really long time, um, finally pulled the trigger to do it, um, especially sort of right after I had my child. Um, you're right about like, we have no knowledge of it's like pre-child, post-child. It's these whole yeah. different universes that you can't ever imagine moving forward. I mean, like seeing what that thing is like on the other side. I mean, you see it with other people, you know, and other family members, but it's nothing like experiencing, experiencing it. And conversely, when you're on that side and you look back, you're like, oh my God, I can never go back. Uh, right. I mean, it's never, it's never going to be the same. We have this joke uh, that my wife and I laugh about is when our, um, my brother and sister-in-law, they had um, three kids under, maybe it was three or four, and we were visiting uh, when we were engaged. And I remember being tired and taking a nap. And we're like, oh my God. And then we had three kids around. We're like, I had the gall to be tired and take a nap when they're raising these like three young kids. Like it's just yeah. this level of naivete at the time. Yeah. Right. I literally have the same exact story with my sister because she's older than me. And so she had kids when I didn't. And she laughs now. She's like, I remember you used to come over and say how tired you were. Meanwhile, her two kids are running around, you know, <laughs> losing her mind. It's all relative. It's all relative. Yeah. yeah. So um, let's back up, though, because as we get to your mission driven company and, um, you know, and your experience with your own child and looking for books, what, what where did you grow up and what was your life like in terms of diversity and inclusion or lack thereof? Yeah, so I um, I'm Chinese American um, and I, I grew up I was born in the U.S. and I grew up in the U.S. and I'm my parents are are immigrants to this country. So, um, you know, had a, I would say pretty typical, you know, child of an immigrant upbringing where, you know, you kind of all you want to do is assimilate and fit mm -hmm. in, although you're still speaking Chinese at home, culturally, you know, very Chinese at home. And um, there are a lot of differences, especially with like parenting that I even see with myself versus you know, my mother who came to this country when she was in college, both mm -hmm. my, my mom and my dad came to this country um, when they were in their 20s. And um, I would say for the most part, you know, she, I think they really tried to give us the opportunity to be, you know, Americans, so obviously prioritizing English, they both learned English, but still speak Chinese at home. I was, uh, I had to go to Chinese school on mm -hmm. Saturdays, hated it, of yep. course. Now looking back, I'm like, oh, I wish I really took advantage and learned um, so my Chinese could be better. Um, but, you know, they really tried to keep those little cultural uh, anchors um, really within our lives and inside our household. So, um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of diversity and representation, I, I'm just thinking back to, you know, the topic of children's books. I certainly don't remember any books that I read when I was a kid and I loved reading. I loved going to like, I have special memories of our local library and going there um, and just constantly reading and taking out all these different picture books and looking at the illustrations. Um, but, you know, I think back then I, I can't think of a single one where there was a, an Asian character or main character in the book. Um, as a kid, I don't, I don't think you really think about that and mm -hmm. that omission. Mm -hmm. It's really as an adult when I looked back and I was like, wow, I, I never, you know, we ne I never saw myself reflected in books mm -hmm. um, and really understanding the impact that that has and how important representation is and how important it is for children to be able to see themselves um, in 
books or movies or TV or just media around them. You have this uh, profound quote on your um, your website for your publishing company. Um, yeah. And by uh, Rudine Sims Bishop, who is a professor and um, thought of as the mother of multicultural children's literature. And I'd like to read it because I, I think there's there's so much in here. Um, when our children cannot find themselves reflected in the books they read, or when the images they see are distorted, negative, or laughable, they learn a powerful lesson about why they are devalued in the society of which they are part. Yeah, really. I mean, that quote just perfectly encapsulated <laughs> um, the reason why I wanted to start this company. Um, and she does; she's done great work, obviously. And so I thought it was really important to include that. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really um, it's really insidious, um, you know the, the the devaluing and the stereotypes and the images, right? So you as you know as an example, um, growing up and you know like not really being aware of it, but looking back being aware of it, um, it's like how would you describe? the subtleties of the lack of representation and how it does impact, uh, I would say, children's identity development, but humans of all ages' identity yeah. development. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, um, you know, it's, it's subtle, but um, I think a, a perfect, I mean, I think what, ha- what happens when you don't see yourself sort of reflected is it, it kind of, to me, it, I think it sort of limits your universe of what's possible and how much um, space you as a human and an individual are allowed to take up. Mm-hmm. So that's why, you know, when, when, um, when you do see kind of people of color, or if I see like an Asian person in sort of a high ranking office or, you know, um, doing things that typically aren't kind of shown um, in media for Asians to do, I, I sort of have this moment where I'm like, I do a double take, you know, or for example, you know, Shang-Chi just released um, the new Marvel movie and um, huge sort of win for Asian representation. But of course, anytime a a movie comes out like that, I always, I haven't seen it yet, but um, so I'm not saying the movie is like this, but I always sort of do this thing where I I hold my breath and wait to see like, did did they get it right? Or are they relying on sort of stereotypes or tropes to to kind of portray Asians, which kind of make me cringe, you know, I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh, it's an an authentic representation. Um, Because we've seen so much of that, right? I mean, so much of my experience of seeing Asians um, reflected in media is uh, not authentic, usually not uh, written by an Asian person or or um, portrayed in a realistic way. And so I think that, you know, it's hard to say what that does, but I think it does limit your universe of thinking of what's possible for yourself mm-hmm. um, to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. And I think for children, especially, that's just, um, yeah, that's, that's just a shame. Yeah, it's powerful. It's po- I mean, it's powerful to see oneself represented and see what's possible um, and equally powerful for the lack, you know, on the, on the lack side. Right. Um, I, you know, you talked about growing up here and as a, um, 
first generation American, a goal of really assimilation. And it made me think of in graduate school, something that um, I spent a fair amount of time studying is the difference between assimilation and acculturation. And at the time, the difference was thought of, um, and I think to a large degree still is, is assimilate is like, you know, you just, you take on all of the dominant culture's um, characteristics and you try to really shed and get rid of your, um, um, your, your own culture. Whereas mm. acculturation is a combination of keeping your own cultural heritage um, while also adopting um, the dominant culture in which one is living. What are you, I mean, as what I'm, I'm, I guess I'm curious is your thoughts on that as now an adult and how you think about that with your own child. Yeah. Um, I never heard that distinction, but that, that definitely makes sense. And, um, certainly I, I prioritizing and not, you know, and keeping those really, um, those aspects of your culture is, is so important to me. I mean, that's a huge reason why I wrote the book that I wrote because, yep. you know, food is a big part of, of your culture and your identity. And, a lot of assimilation, um, you know, is to, I mean, in my experience, and I think a lot of Asian Americans experiences is to sort of reject and be like, oh, no, I don't eat those foods. Mom, pack me a sandwich. You know, I want, <laughs> I want to be like all the other kids, you know, don't pack mm -hmm. me any Chinese food. Um, so that's a really common experience for, I think, for Asian kids, and a lot of kids of Im other immigrants, too, um, is food as a sign that you are assimilating right mm -hmm. so i'm gonna bring like a pizza to school i'm gonna bring right. sandwiches right. to school um and i definitely went through that i mean my own kind of assimilation you know into into this um when i was when i was a kid and i certainly want my child to be really really proud of of who he is and where he comes from mm -hmm. um you know and i think it's important for his relationship with his grandparents i think it's really important for his you know identity and understanding hey i'm not just i i am american but i'm also this you know and that has so many wonderful things and attributes to it mm -hmm. and do you find yourself actively parenting to that to the to the both or is it something that is just i mean do you, do you have to be mindful about it or is it something that just yeah. happens naturally for you I think I definitely have to be mindful of it. You know, in many ways, this is sort of the divide and the tension that a lot of first generation kids feel too, is that you, you don't feel Asian enough, but you mm -hmm. don't feel like American enough. And mm -hmm. um, I'm certainly very American in the sense that, you know, I speak English fluently and um, my Chinese is, you know, okay, I can get by, I can, <laughs> I can get by in a restaurant ordering food. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, it's a very conscious, choice with my parenting to have to introduce those elements because I didn't grow up in Taiwan or China. You know, um, I, of course, visited a lot. So I know I'm very familiar with the lifestyle there. But, um, you know, I'm I, I was born here, raised here. So to have to really bring in those elements of um, my background and my culture of growing up uh, and really making sure that he has those elements is a really conscious decision. So making sure that we have, you know, for example, like bilingual books in the house. And I mean, language is sort of the most obvious example of that. 
making sure he's learning Mandarin and using the using Mandarin in the house, which does not come naturally to me because I obviously don't speak it in my you know everyday life except mm-hmm. with my parents. Yeah, and yeah. even with my parents, it's like half half Mandarin, half English. So, yeah, I certainly think it's a, ver- a very conscious aspect, and then I'm sure there are very not conscious aspects of how I parent that are just probably a result of me also growing up in a household, uh, in an immigrant household. Mm-hmm. So, and do you find this? I mean, so this is this is me just speaking qualitatively, not quantitatively. That as a first generation um, person, there would be more. Um, I guess this so let me say it this way this is what I'm finding or have have seen that first generation Americans do have a strong pull for more of what we're talking for assimilation and then once one has become part of um the American culture and has kids of their own there's a pull to then really maintain one's cultural heritage right in a way that I think possibly our kids might have a more um, balanced view than someone who's first generation and trying to find their way in this country. Is that like, what do you feel about that? Yeah, I definitely see that with my, myself and, you know, my other friends for sure. Certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, and I think it's because, you know, I'm, I can ima- only imagine, you know, coming to a country, um, you know, from a different country and, and these, the, the aspects of assimilation are so important to just survival. (laughs) And um, if you think about just the basics of getting around, you know, renting or buying a house or having a job, it's like, all right, we got to learn English. We have to learn how things work and you have to be able to communicate with people. So um, I think those are, it's just a natural uh, survival technique to just have to assimilate. And Mm -hmm. I see Mm -hmm. that with my, my parents certainly. and, and we don't have that pressure, you know, where mm-hmm. we are American. And I think it's right. more about, um, raising our children, um, in, a, in, in an environment that really honors like who they are and where they come from. Yeah. So there isn't that pressure to say, Hey, you have to do this. You have to do that. It's mm-hmm. more like, look how amazing, right. you know, uh, it is to speak Mandarin with your grandparents or celebrating these holidays. Um, and yeah, so I do see that for sure. When you started um, researching, you know, you started looking for children's books, and then you started researching, looking for um, people that looked like your family um, or other people of color. You you found seventy one, I believe the stat is seventy one percent of children's books um, feature characters that are white or that are animals. Right. Yeah, I found that statistic. They did a study, and this is, I think, from 2019. So that might not be the most current stat, but there was a study that was done, um, and that was just pretty surprising to me. I mean, the number itself was surprising to me, but it made sense mm-hmm. based on what I was seeing because, you know, it, it really was something I had to seek out to be able to find, for example, books that had Asian characters in them or just ch- children of color in them. Um, or characters of color. And so that, that was really, really surprised to see that. And it certainly was, um, 
I mean, it, it, it made sense, you know, mm-hmm. I had to really like look for, look for those books. So I, I said, okay, yeah, that, that does make sense, but it's shocking all the same. So what was the turning point? I mean, you know, you, t- at this, at this talk of the conversation, you know, talked about, you know, the grind of corporate America and having kids yeah. and what, what was the turning point? Was there an actual like tipping point or was this a grad, a gradual process? Um, I think the tipping point was me coming back to work over my maternity leave. Um, you know, I think that really was the tipping point, but then it was a gradual <laughs> uh, journey to get to the point where I was able to leave um, mm-hmm. and then, you know, start my own business. So it's, it's hard. It's really, really difficult. I totally understand why people end up in those jobs Um you know, there's a certain level of security there. And as a family, you have, you know, a mortgage to pay and tuition to pay and things like that. So I, I totally get the the pressure of, of needing, of needing to stay there. Mm-hmm. And of course, the fear of the uncertainty, right? right. I'm going to leave this really stable position to, to go after something that is um, potentially more fulfilling, but there's a lot of unknown and risk to it. So it was, I would say it was a, a gradual, it took a lot of <laughs> self-reflection and work. And mm-hmm. um, the firm had a um, life coach that I was working with, uh, a career coach. And really, I was talking to her about, you know, leaving the firm because I it wasn't, <laughs> I knew I wasn't going to be there long term. Yeah. But, you know, I, it was a lot of hours with her and trying to, to um, find out the right path for how to make that transition happen that I was most comfortable with, but also challenging myself, you know, Mm -hmm. not just kind of sitting there and thinking about it all the time, but really, really going after it. So yeah, I would say it was gradual, but it was a lot of work Mm -hmm. (laughs) to get there. Were you someone who was, um, so you are an entrepreneur and, um, were you someone that always had an entrepreneurial bent and focus, um, and or was it something that you like you did it was lying dormant or you had to cultivate it you know to to make <laughs> yeah. this step I think uh, I think I've always had an entrepreneurial spirit um in me you know I I there's something about starting your own thing from the ground up um the mix of creativity plus um just strategy and I I that's always been inside me um you know, working at a as an attorney at a law firm was sort of a detour from that. So before I even went to law school, um, I I worked in the nonprofit er- sector, so social entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which requires a lot of the same the same skills. Um, yep. Sometimes even harder. Um, and I started a I opened up basically the LA branch of a, an international nonprofit that worked on human trafficking issues. Oh wow! So. Yeah, so um, I did that for for a few years out uh, coming out of undergrad, and that just that was just me, you know, like building this thing from the ground up, and I loved I loved it, you know. And we I did all of you kind of wear multiple hats as mm-hmm. um, a founder, and so you start trying to build this office, and you start hiring people, um, you know, you work, uh, you reach out and try to create partnerships, and I was doing all of the fundraising as well. And the programs. Uh, it was a lot of work. And mm-hmm. again, this seems to be a theme of mine. The burnout was was pretty intense, um, especially, uh, you know, unfortunately, in nonprofits, you know, salary and, and being able to create, yeah. um, make us make a, you know, 
livable wage is not common. And so especially one that's just starting from the ground up. Um, And so that taking a break from that was my decision to go to law school, um, kind of with the intention of of doing um, public interest, although public interest doesn't (laughs) pay a whole lot either, unfortunately. Um, So I did a lot of actually pro bono work in my time uh, Mm -hmm. at the law firm, just because that's always been um, something that I've been passionate about. Well, you're very purpose-driven, right? Yes. <laughs> um, you are very purpose-driven. And um, the the publishing company, the publishing world, um, having some of my own experiences in that world, that's also not one where um, people are throwing money at you either. You're very, so you're very like, you don't, you're not leading by the money. You lead by what's important <laughs> to you. And then how do right. you, how do you make it work? Absolutely. Um, Cause I feel like, you know, I left, something that was very stable and I took a big risk. And I, my, my feeling is that if I'm going to do this, it has to be authentic to who I am and something that I really feel passionate about. You know, it's, I'm giving, I'm putting, I'm risking too much to like, you know, settle. So yeah. um, definitely very purpose-driven, always have been in everything that I've done. Um, and this last, you know, this journey of, of starting my own publishing company, I, I feel really, really strongly that it can make a huge impact. What would your uh, wisdom be to our listeners, um, particularly um, particularly mothers who are listening, mm-hmm. who have these ideas, who are feel stuck, feel they're, you know, they're doing what they need to do, but not what they want to do. Um, you've already shared the compassion and the reality of like, yeah, there are a lot of situations where we need to do something. What do you say to them about looking at these other possibilities? Oh my gosh. I have so much to say about that. <laughs> Having just gone through it myself. Um, I will first say, uh, I think to give yourself a little bit of grace is always um, a good thing because I know how hard that decision is. It is not easy, and I there were so many times where I beat myself up on it, saying, "Oh my God, it's been, you know, six months, and I've been thinking about this, and I'm still here. I, you know, I should have got done this faster." Um, I think everyone's journey through that transition is totally unique. There's a lot of other factors, personal circumstances, finances, um, familial circumstances that are an, a factor in that decision making, and Um, so I understand that burning need and desire to sort of get out and want to do your own thing, but, um, make sure you do it at a pace that you're comfortable with, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, and I, but then also challenge your, it's a, it's a, it's a fine balance between that and challenging yourself to really push yourself outside of your comfort zone. Um, at least for myself, Mm -hmm. that's, that's how it was. And is, so what about that fear of failure or how do we look at, um, failure, um, as someone who has spent a lot of time in the entrepreneurial uh, space as well, um, you learn a lot as you, as you step Mm -hmm. out and do it. And then, uh, and I personally have found that, you know, when I was having a more perfectionistic mindset, things, um, that's not a helpful or healthy way to look at, um, really stretching yourself. So what, what would you say about Absolutely. that? I totally agree. And I think coming especially from the legal I corporate law background where 
everything has to be perfect. <laughs> you know, even down to what you write is like, you know, redlined five times by somebody else. Uh, those perfectionist tendencies, um, yeah, the, those are hard to sort of shut off um, and turn off. And um, just that's something I had to learn and really um, tell myself is that you're never going to have a perfect plan in place to leave. And even if you do, even if you feel like it's all this this great plan that you have set up, uh, almost 100% of the time, it's not going to go according to that plan. Mm-hmm. So um it takes a whole lot of self-confidence and, and really believing in the process and living in the moment to really turn that part off of mm-hmm. saying, well, I need to know exactly what's going to happen. You know, five, what's my six year plan, one year plan or six month plan, one year plan, you know, 10 year plan. It's nice to have those projections to kind of give you a guide, but that's not how it's going to go, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, I think it's really it's really hard part of my, for me personally, my brain to turn off. And that's a lot of where like my anxiety and my fears come from. Right. But certainly the yeah, entrepreneurial experience is never linear or how you think it's going to go. <laughs> no. And going full circle to how you started this, which is to, uh, to act with grace, right? Like you have to be very compassionate to yourself. Yes. Um, I mean, just for someone to take the risk that in my mind is a victory in and of itself. I mean, just to go out on that limb and try something that you feel you need to do, that's the win. And then the rest of it, you got to try to be kind to yourself. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Okay. So let's turn to um, What's That? Your first book, um, which is so beautifully illustrated as so many vibrant colors. Um, I was smelling the food. I wanted the food. I wanted to. I wanted to taste the food. So tell everyone, like, wh- wh- how where this book came from to be your first book. Yeah, um, I'm a huge foodie. I also during my time at the law firm started a, a a food and drinks and lifestyle blog. So was doing that on the side, and it, it was just purely a, a passion uh, passion project. And I love all things food. I mean, I could talk about food forever. So it just seemed natural to have uh, my first children's book be about food. And I always had this idea and this storyline in mind about kind of embracing and accepting the foods that you eat. And I think food is such a great great way to talk about identity and some of those issues because it's accessible to so many people. And there's there's so many people that have different uh, memories about food and um, thoughts about food that um, are relatable no matter where you come from. So um, it's, yeah, it just seemed like a natural place to start. And I started writing it down and thinking about food, talking about food is fun. And I'm glad it, <laughs> to hear that reading about it was fun for you too. I mean, who doesn't love food? You know, it's like, it's, yeah. kind of, it's very universal. So um, I just wanted to keep it that way and really have it accessible to a lot of different people um, in the sense that it's all about loving the foods that you like. And hopefully that joy translates to other to other people and other foods. I had a a personal flashback in reading the book when um, the main character comes uh, with his um, wonderfully uh, his wonderful food uh, that he thought was just the best food ever and normal in his family. And um, mm-hmm. I, now that as we're filming, the um, the uh, Jewish High Holy Days are coming up. And um, 
on one of these particular holidays, you know, we're not allowed to eat bread. And so in my house, I couldn't bring my sandwiches to school. I had, (laughs) I had matzah sandwiches and, um, being in a very non-Jewish area, I had that same feeling that the character did, you know, like, Oh, should I, you know, eat this privately? Should, you know, people like literally like, what's that? Right. Like the time. (laughs) And, um, so as a child, I could, I could imagine as a child reading that book, um, I'd be able to have a different look at um, embracing that cultural heritage as opposed to just feeling different. Um, and, uh, you know, when you're a kid, you don't want to feel different. You don't want to be no, the odd right. person out. Totally. Right. As a ch- Especially as a child, you just want to fit in, right? right. You want to be like everyone else. Yeah. Um, but I'm so glad to hear that that resonated with you in your own experience, you know? So the book and then... Um, well, just tell everyone a little bit more about the book. I gave a little teaser, but give everyone just yeah. a high level. So they have to, you guys are going to want to read this, but give them a little teaser. Yeah. So the book is, um, the book is about um, a, a young boy who brings a homemade um, meal to school. Like you said, is very excited about it because it's some of his favorite foods. Um, but it's all Chinese food that his grandma prepared for him. And when he arrives at school for his first day, he realizes, oh my goodness, everybody else is eating sandwiches and I, my lunch is looking a little bit strange. Um, and he's feeling really hesitant to open his lunchbox and kind of sh- show other kids what he has. And then another um, student sits next to him named Mina and she opens her lunchbox and he finds, oh, she's eating Indian food and rice and dal. And sort of through their uh, lunches, they explore this new friendship and they start talking about food and they share how much they love cooking with their family in the kitchen um, and some of their favorite dishes. And they kind of go on this fantastical journey through the illustrations um, in exploring all the foods that they love. And uh, at the end, he realizes that, you know, these foods are really what makes me special and what um, makes me unique. And yeah, that's, that's the general plot of the book. Yes. And, uh, uh, and has a new friend from a different culture who equally um, likes her own food. And um, it all just becomes um, part of the friendship. Um, And again, part of embracing it. So I, 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 I think this context is so important with our kids. Um, because a lot of times um, when we grow up different or when we grow up minority, and I mean like a minority of people in a situation, um, you only get certain messages. And um, I know a lot of families at home are really trying to preserve this cultural heritage and sometimes in action, sometimes in story. Um you know, it just brings me back to how can we, how can we help parents listening to find a context or find a story um, or a narrative to help their kids understand where they come from, while also being able to understand where they are and where they're living. Wow, gosh! I mean, I, that, that's kind of what sent me down the path of trying to find books with you know Asian characters is trying to surround, you know, trying to bring that kind of um, information and uh, surrounding to, for my child. But I mean, I, that's a really tough question. I, yeah. I, I think you do what you can with the resources that you can um, and really talking about it a lot with your kids. 
um, and, and involving them in the process. So I, at least for the example of food, mm-hmm. um, you know, I really try to have my, my kid be involved in preparing food and eating food and make a very conscious point to eat, you know, incorporate Chinese foods into his, you know, meals and stuff. And he actually has a really broad palate <laughs> and he loves all kinds of foods. So, um, it's really the exposure and constantly exposing them to it, but also t- having a conversation with them about it, you know, mm-hmm. and talking about it and making it very kind of a normal part of their life. I think the more you normalize it as part of your own lives, then mm-hmm. they feel like, oh, there's nothing amiss here. It's just this is normal for us. Yeah, and I, I agree. And I'm also thinking about and drawing on my own experiences as a person of a kid and as a parent is that I also think it's important for parents to be aware of the challenges of, of fitting the desire to fit in and the why to fit in as opposed, like, it's like this balance of, Hey, like this is where we come from and this is where your ancestors come from and here's what we're proud of and here's what we do and here's why we do it. And also to understand that a child will still have other pressures mm-hmm. and insecurities and um, identity development goes on for so long is trying to figure mm-hmm. it all out. And it's, I think, as parents, like how to be mindful and um, just aware that our kids go through a yeah. process when they're trying to figure out who they are vis-a-vis where they came from and w- where they live. Right. No, absolutely. So... Your your company, completely mission-driven, you are wanting to take on um, lots of issues based on inclusion and health. Um, tell everyone, like, where, where are you going? What, 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 what should we be expecting from uh, Glue Publishing? Glue, yeah. Glue Books. Yeah. Um, well, it, certainly this is our, our first book, so uh, there's more to come <laughs> down the road. But, um, yeah, I mean, I... I started the company because I initially wanted to write this book um, and felt that there was a real, you know, like I, like we've been talking about a lack of um, uh, characters of color represented in children's books, um, but also the children, you know, the industry of publishing is also uh, has its own diversity <laughs> issues. Um, and I think there's certainly a correlation between that as well as between that and the content that is put out there. So um, when we talk about a very mission-driven business and a very mission-driven company, um, really prioritizing authors and illustrators of color or people who come from marginalized backgrounds that are also speaking about and writing about those issues is really important. Um, And we're at the very, very beginning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. this is sort of the the start of, of our journey and um, our first book is kind of the first product that we have out there and it's just going to be building from there. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, Karen, it's time for the parent footprint moment question. Okay. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, a parent, an awareness of your own parents. And this new awareness had a positive impact on yourself, your child, or those you love. So my moment is something we've already talked about. <laughs> so it'll be a, a bit of a repetition, but it's it's true in my case, absolutely, is that returning, you know, returning back to work from my from my maternity leave was just pretty pivotal. 
um, in, in, in my life and um, in my parenting. And so one was just for my own kind of self-development and wanting to pursue something um, that was more meaningful to myself and, and purposeful in my life and having a career that I was really passionate about. I think children having a child just shifts everything into perspective and it, it became all that more urgent to me to pursue something that was meaningful. And then the second was just a pure kind of time issue. You know, I didn't have time to spend with my child and um, it, 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 it was so important to me as a parent to be there for a lot of, of those, you know, milestones. And I had to, you know, he was already in, in daycare. So a lot of um, little things like him crawling, you know, I missed and stuff like that. I wasn't mm-hmm. there for that. So when you, when you are not there, you have to give up your weekends to work or things like that. It just becomes all that more um, urgent for you to want to kind of reshape your life to mm-hmm. fit what your parenting values and your parenting goals are. So for me, that moment just, it, it really, really became, I had thought about it a lot, but really when I came back to work from, from maternity leave, I was like, all right, I got to put a, put a plan in action and, and do this. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. And that, that moment, your response is like completely aligned with the idea of this show, which is, being aware of what we want for our kids and what and based on what that awareness is is acting in accordance right like mindfully acting in accordance and then to take it a step further the only way to achieve that is for us to be aware and healthy um ourselves so you knew okay, this is what I want. But in order to do this, I have to get out of the lane that I've been driving in with my career because it won't be possible to achieve our goals, our parenting goals, our values. I have to go on a different path. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you for, uh, for sharing your story with us. And, um, so excited for your entrepreneurial adventure takeoff. Like you are, you're on takeoff you. right now. So, t- yes. <laughs> so tell everyone um, as your book is coming out here, where everyone can find um, this current book and then what's to come. Yeah. Um, so the book is going to be released at the end of November and you can find, you can purchase it at gluebooks.com, um, which is our website. Um, and, you know, you can follow us on all the social media platforms. It's just at glue books, um, across all of them. And you can receive updates through that, uh, or sign up for our newsletter on our website. You'll receive updates about our book launch, um, in November, as well as other future books to come. Nice. And everyone glue is G L O O, which made me remember that I didn't ask <laughs> you, come on, tell us about the name. What, what, where did glue books come from? Um, you know, I just, it was kind of playing around with, with different names and I just love the idea of glue, of bringing people together, that concept, bringing things together, um, and bringing in this case people together and then glue being kind of the binding of a book. Um, so it was just sort of a double meaning. And then I loved kind of the fun, you know, G L O O. Thank you for clarifying that, by the way, yeah, yes, it's yeah. not G L U E G L O O book. Um, and it was just a fun, a fun word. Bringing everyone together. 
Yes, that's what it's about. Bringing everyone together, yeah. embracing who you are, your uniqueness, where you come from, and um, really compassion for oneself and for all. Thanks, Karen. That concludes our show for today. Uh, please Thank share you this. Thank so much for having me. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Please share this episode with anyone you think will benefit. And we take anyone who's wanting and willing to join our wonderful community. You know where to find us. You know what I'm going to ask you to do. That is to be the person you want your child to become and ask yourself the guiding question daily. What footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com forward slash ads. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.